gender. Body acceptance. Abortion. Sex. Racial justice. Feminism. Birth. Parenthood. Stigma. Bodily autonomy. And more. This is Reproductive Left by Mabel Watson Center, an independent feminist nonprofit comprehensive healthcare provider in Bangor, Maine. Join us as we explore topics that impact our sexual and reproductive health and lives. Here's your host, Aspen Rulin. Aspen uses they, them pronouns and is our client and community advocate. And welcome to another episode of Reproductive Left. I'm your host, Aspen. My pronouns are they, them. And today I'll be chatting with Sarah Haas about fertility care. Who needs it? What are the options? And what are the barriers? Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Aspen. Yes, I'm Sarah Haas. I use they, them, and she, her pronouns. And I am a queer sex educator in the Bangor area. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, So let's get right into it. First question, what is fertility care. Yeah, so fertility care is pretty specifically um, reproductive care that includes reproduction related to having a baby, more or Mm -hmm. less. So looking at, you know, what are our bodies making for, you know, cells at the right amounts in order for us to you know, put them all together and have, you know, a baby on the other end. There you go. Yeah. Reproductive care is a more, or reproductive health, reproductive care is a more general phrase that can obviously includes fertility care because, you know, reproduction. Uh, But it also has things like pap smears, abortion access, contraception, um, you know, a ton of other things. So I think it's really good to get that qualifying of what we mean by fertility care and, you know, that being separate from, or at least, you know, related to, but not talking about the whole spectrum of reproductive care. Um, So, you know, even though that's much more specific than just reproductive care, reproductive health, it's still a really big topic. Uh, So, you know, you mentioned that it's kind of everything with like, you know, people trying to, trying to conceive, trying to get pregnant, and at the other end of it, you know, getting a baby out of it. Uh, Some examples of, uh, you know, fertility care that we often think of are like IUI, IVF, uh, but even, you know, folks just doing ovulation tracking counts. Are there other examples of fertility care that you can think of that I missed? Um, yeah, I think a lot of times, especially if we're talking about queer fertility care, mm. um, we talk about like reciprocal IVF, which is when one partner will have their eggs removed um, through like a cycle of IVF and basically will kind of, you know, force the body into producing more eggs and mm-hmm. maturing them, you know, right away. Those will be harvested. And instead of putting it back into the same person, what we'll do is they'll put that into somebody else's uterus. So Okay, yeah. That's a great option if, you know, you want to have, like, your genetics passed along and you want to use your, you know, genetic material, but you don't want to be the partner carrying either because of, like, health issues or because of gender stuff. Right. That totally makes sense. I also just realized it might be helpful if I defined a couple of the actors 
acronyms that we've used. Um, so IUI, which I mentioned before, is in uterine or intrauterine rather insemination. Um, so that is basically, you know, adding adding semen, you know, putting that into the uterus to facilitate someone getting pregnant. And IVF is in vitro fertilization. So like you said, you know, harvesting eggs, there's some fertility medications that are used to make it so that those eggs can be harvested. Um, and then those are fertilized and then they are put back either in the same person's uterus or in a different person's uterus. Um, so now that we've covered like you know, what are examples of fertility care? One thing I really want to get into is what are some examples of unhelpful advice that people who are getting or plan to get for fertility care get? Yeah, so I mean, you can see this on all types of different media. I mean, look at any, you know, show or movie where people are trying to, you know, have a baby. There's all sorts of stuff that is like, oh, well, you know, put your hips up, which is actually a kind of helpful one, you mm -hmm. know, um, but talking about like, oh, well, have you cut this out of your diet? Have you, mm -hmm. um, you know, tried this medical thing that obviously me as a person on the street has no medical knowledge whatsoever, um, you know, trying that. But even past the, you know, trying to help our body, you know, make the connection more or less, there is more than that too, right? So me as a person in a relationship, so I've got a uterus, my partner has a uterus. As we look to, you know, start our family, there's lots of really unhelpful advice there. Yep. So, uh, yeah. Like, you know, not to get too into it, but, you know, elevating your hips isn't really going to make a big difference in your situation. Absolutely. And I think also even that's such a good example of like someone might have good advice, but if you don't ask for it and they're giving it unsolicited, that's not helpful. Like if you, you know, if you have a couple where like one of them is sperm producing and one of them has a uterus and they're, you know, trying to get pregnant and they bring it up to their healthcare provider or they bring it up to friends of theirs who have conceived and carried pregnancies. It's one thing to say it there. It's another thing to be at Thanksgiving dinner and your grandmother's like, well, have you tried elevating your hips? That's a very different vibe. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you mentioned stuff with like, oh, cut out this thing from your diet or cut, you know, take this medication. Honestly, I have been scrolling online a lot and I've seen people bring up stuff around that people trying to really take advantage of people struggling with their fertility to sell some sort of, you know, basically snake oil or just some sort of like pyramid scheme product that like, oh, this will absolutely fix it. Um, and here's the frustrating part about mm -hmm. that, too, is that whenever we offer that unsolicited advice, there is almost like this, this is the magic cure, and you're not just trying hard enough to mm -hmm. get pregnant, and if you try this thing, if you try just a little harder, it's going to magically happen. That's a very frustrating experience for a lot of folks. Right. It's... Uh, speaking of things that are frustrating, one example of unhelpful advice that people get, particularly folks, um, you know, who might be in queer relationships, but also just anyone struggling with fertility, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of people say like, oh, just get someone you know to donate sperm. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to talk a little bit more about why that's not as easy of an option as it might seem on the surface? 
Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is something that is referenced in media very frequently. There was an mm-hmm. episode of The L Word where, you know, this, you know, person had just hooked up with somebody that they had dated in the past and, you know, they had a uterus and this person had sperm and they were like, well, we'll just hook up and then we'll have a baby on the other end. Now, the issue with that and the issue with what we'd call like a known donor situation is it is not so clear and cut and dry when it comes to legality. Mm. So if we're looking at, you know, you are trying to get pregnant and you and your partner just don't have the you know genetic material needed right um and you say oh you know just have someone you know donate sperm well on the other end if you know who the sperm donor is then there's a a legal you know bit where you know you kind of have to they have that knowledge that oh okay you know you got pregnant after we had sex and now I have a legal right to this child and that Mm. is an extremely dangerous situation if this person you know doesn't have um any kind of actual relationship with you know you your family um but also puts your partner at risk of not being able to like pick your child up from school make medical decisions god forbid anything happened to you so as much as you know people like to think oh well it's just you know go down to the corner and grab some sperm and then <laughs> there you go it's it's not that simple you right. have to you know talk with a lawyer about you know how do you terminate someone's parental rights so that then your partner can assume those parental rights and you right. can have the same legal ability to take care of your child even if you're not biologically related right i mean we've all heard the turkey baster jokes mm-hmm. and you know to be clear like that is an option that can work for people i know people who have you know, like known donors, people who are like, you know, maybe they're not in their life or their kiddo's life anymore, or maybe they are. Uh, but, you know, this idea that it's just as simple as like, oh, we'll get a turkey baster and you won't have anything else to worry about is not true. There is the legal stuff that you have to deal with. And, you know, that's that's important to keep in mind. And that's also not free. Um So it's not, it's just another example of like, yes, that can be a viable option for people, but it's not the simple option that a lot of people might think that it is. Um, So we've talked, you know, about unhelpful advice. Uh, I want to get into some of the barriers of accessing fertility care. Now, there are a lot of them, so we're going to have a lot to discuss, and some of these are areas that I'm super knowledgeable about, but what piece of it do you want to touch first? Uh, Yeah, basically, um, when it comes to, you know, starting a family, getting pregnant, um, if you don't have the, you know, genetic material that you need to have a child, a lot of times when it comes to insurance coverage, they may deem you infertile, even though there is no actual issue. For Mm. example, my insurance company, I won't name them here, um, but my insurance company labels infertility as, you know, being able to conceive despite engaging in frequent sexual relations without contraception for a year or more. Great. Awesome. That doesn't work if you don't have the genetic material needed to have a child. So, I should probably tell my partner that she's infertile because based on this definition of insurance coverage, yeah, she's infertile, you know, despite having frequent sexual relations without contraception, contraception, um, not recognizing that like their definition of sexual relations does not necessarily match reality. reality. Right. And that's such a good example. I mean, I, 
folks who know me and know more about what I do with my work at Mabel Wadzer Center outside of the Reproductive Left podcast know that a lot of what I do is with insurance and specifically helping uh, members of the trans community navigate insurance. And, you know, insurance companies are not designed to be super nice to cis and straight people. And they are essentially designed to act like anyone who is part of the LGBTQ plus community doesn't even exist. Because yeah, that definition of like, oh, if you are having sex all the time without contraception and like you're not able to conceive, then that means you're infertile is very, that's very cis hetero assumptions. That is making the assumption, um, first off, that all sex is, you know, penetrative penis and vagina sex. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, often what's needed to get pregnant, but like, you know, it's, it's saying sexual relations in general, not penis and vagina sex. Um, and it's making the assumption that every single couple, you have one person with a penis and one person with a vagina, uh, which is problematic as a definition. I definitely want to talk more specifically about insurance and how that plays a role with being a barrier. But first, let's cut to Abby with a quick Mabel's Fast Fact. Did you know that most sexually transmitted infections are asymptomatic? That is why it's recommended to get tested annually or more often if you have new or multiple partners. Learn more at MabelWadsworth.org in our blog, News from Mabel's. And we are back. Um, So like I promised, I want to talk more about insurance um, having barriers. Uh, Can you think of other, I mean, you know, obviously there's that definition of what it means to be infertile, which can be like very frustrating that it's just like, okay, like, but my partner's not infertile. We're just not straight people. Um, Or we're just not cis people. Uh, That obviously is an issue. Um, what are some other ways that that insurance acts as a barrier? Yeah, so a lot of it, it with insurance, even if we could get, you know, that kind of care, because it's so tied into our medical system, right? Mm-hmm. And our medical system being, you know, if you come in, you know, we are going to, you know, try to run these things to diagnose you with a thing and um, is not necessarily always aimed at wellness, right? Mm. It's aimed at treating disease, not necessarily wellness. And so when we're looking at, you know, fertility care, even if we take away the, you know, we're not going to cover you if you're infertile, that's still, you know, there's that gap between, okay, I need to use a medical facility to kind of do this in a way that is safe, that, you know, I can use donor sperm because you can't keep it in your refrigerator at home. You have to send it basically to a fertility center. Mm. Um, They'll hold it, you know, and then you know, expect you to kind of go through those procedures with them, IUI um, or IVF. Um, And a lot of times too, um, there's a bit of pressure there and it's, it's kind of put into more of that clinical setting. And that's a barrier that, you know, we have faced, you know, I have a partner who is not super big on medical stuff, right? Mm. And the idea that we, in order to access things like donor sperm in the way that, you know, we don't have to look at having a lawyer is, okay, 
instead of doing it, you know, the kind of at-home way, we then have to look at, okay, now you have to go into the sterile setting that is very um, not, you know, not fun, not romantic, you know, and not great. So uh, even though that's not kind of an insurance barrier is... That's still a barrier, though. Yeah. Um, Another insurance barrier that uh, I have actually dealt with not in my own personal life. Um, so with with my work as being a client advocate, I am you know fairly well versed in trans healthcare and navigating trans healthcare and uh, you know specifically with insurance. And not too long ago, I actually had someone who also does insurance navigation reach out to me because they had this couple that they were working with that is a you know, that is a straight couple, but one of the people in this couple um, is a trans man. And they were like, you know, this this person who helps navigate insurance was like, you know, their their plan does cover some stuff with fertility care, but I'm so confused about how to go about this because there is no inclusion of trans people in this. Mm-hmm. And this insurance policy, I'll admit, I do not know what insurance company this is. And if I did, I probably wouldn't name them here. Um, but, uh, you know, this, this navigator was telling me how, um, you know, this policy on whether or not the insurance company would cover fertility care or cover like even, you know, stuff with sperm banking and IUI, uh, you know, they had it specific by gender and it was like, oh, if it is a male-female couple, they will only, you know, they'll cover sperm banking if there is a diagnosis of infertility. Um, you know, probably not fully cover, but cover. But if the couple is a female-female couple, then they will not cover the first few rounds of IUI and going through a sperm bank, they'll only start to cover it if you've had like, I think three attempts and three failures, which is so wild. Like, honestly, I have to question if that's a violation of the Maine Human Rights Act, um, you know, because of like, you can't discriminate against people based on their sexual orientation or their gender or their sex, which like, that very much sounds like it would be. Um, but you know, it's it was a policy that was both homophobic in that, you know, people who are in queer relationships are like deprioritized uh, and, you know, are in, and are expected to have more of a financial burden, but also transphobic in that it just didn't even acknowledge the fact that trans people exist. And of course, one thing that comes up with, with trans folks and fertility care is that accessing a lot of types of gender affirming care does impact fertility. Absolutely. Yeah. I, as I've been looking at, you know, what kind of gender affirming care I would want to receive, a lot of it has to do with, is is going to affect my fertility later. Mm. Um, I have a condition known as polycystic ovarian syndrome, which also is an infertility-related condition mm. in that, you know, my body does not produce hormones at the same level, and um, it basically what it ends up being is it's very hard for my body to, like, release an egg every month, right? Mm-hmm. Fine, cool, whatever. Um, but on top of that, um, you know, 
I've been told, you know, it's going to be very difficult for me to get pregnant, even if I was, you know, cis straight, right? Um, so that's already, you know, kind of one, you know, one, one barrier, one barrier. But looking at, you know, as I look to receive this care that is going to help affirm my gender, right? Like things like testosterone, is that going to affect that fertility so mm-hmm. much that it pushes it from that level of it's going to be very hard to it's going to be impossible. Um, so if thinking about that and even outside of like surgical interventions, right, just hormones um, is a huge, huge thing that I have to think about and I have to consider. Right. You know, I am lucky in my situation with having, uh, you know, taken testosterone as gender affirming care. I'm someone who is child free by choice. I know that I don't want to have kids. And so that was a thing that I didn't have to consider. And, you know, anyone who is looking to get gender affirming hormone therapy, as long as they're going to like a provider who who knows what they're doing, you know, is very informed of like, hey, this is a thing to consider. And so, you know, sometimes it might be suggested like, oh, you know, if you're going to start estrogen as gender affirming care, see about having sperm frozen. Or if you're going to start testosterone as gender affirming care, see about having eggs frozen. But that is not something that is covered by insurance, I think ever, I, I have not seen any insurance policy that covers it, at least not in this country. And, um, that stuff is not cheap and it's not even like, it's just a one-time payment. It is like a, it's basically paying monthly rent to have your sperm or eggs stored in like a really, really fancy freezer. Um, because your home freezer is not going to cut it. Absolutely. Uh, and that's, it's just so tricky because, you know, fertility care and gender affirming care can be, can both be really important to someone. Um, I think sometimes there's this idea that like trans people don't, or you know, regardless of how someone identifies people who are accessing gender affirming care, you know, that they, for some reason would just not have an interest in, you know, having pregnancies or having children. And it's like, no, like trans people or, you know, gender non-conforming people, like, you know, are people who have, you know, wants for their lives. And, you know, some people like me, That doesn't include having children, but for some people it does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was talking with um, a coworker of mine about looking at, you know, starting a family and thinking about like, oh, you know, I would be the partner that would carry, right? But thinking about how gendered the systems already Mm -hmm. are, even just, you know, fertility care, but pregnancy in general is extremely gendered and whether we want to potentially expose ourselves to discrimination to you know discussions about oh that person must be waiting for their wife in the waiting room and it's like well no I'm pregnant like and Mm -hmm. lots of different conversations it so fertility may not even be on the forefront of everybody's mind if they don't have an affirming provider already. Exactly. Because why would you want to kind of expose yourself to that later? Right. It's, it makes 
you know, this part of someone's life so complicated when it really doesn't have to be. Um, You know, a big part of the education work that I do, more focused around abortion, but, you know, with with reproductive health care in general is the intersection of of trans people and that because having body parts is not a gendered thing beyond how you might personally relate it to your gender uh but you know i'm the way that i see it i'm a non-binary person so like you know i have a non-binary uterus uh that's that's my approach because it's my body so i'm allowed to do that um but yeah, there is I something I've really noticed is there is still so much gendering in in abortion, in pregnancy, in fertility care, but there is a very strong push to actually be inclusive in the language that we use. Um, you know, it's something that I've seen come up a lot, you know, specifically with discussions around abortion, which makes sense because abortion is like a very big topic, especially with all of the nonsense in Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, you know, and it's not a new conversation. Like, I've noticed that some people have this approach, have this idea that the idea of, of trans people having abortions, having children, having pregnancies, getting fertility care is, like, new? No, it's not. It's really not. It's kind of always been a thing. We're going to take a quick break for another Mabel's Fast Fact with Abby. At Mabel Wadsworth Center, we offer sexually transmitted infection testing and treatment, including rapid HIV testing, and we prescribe PrEP. Our services are always confidential. Learn more at MabelWadsworth.org. And we are back. So on the topic of, you know, looking at fertility, what are some of the other, what are other big fertility care things that you can think of for folks to think about? I have one more of a barrier to discuss, but I just want to make sure if you had any others. No, I think that pretty much covers a lot of the fertility stuff. Just the, you know, the kind of the biggest, biggest barrier that queer people face, and this is a barrier for a lot of our lives, is money, financial, right? So being able to access this care that I've never had an insurance company that I've used that has covered fertility care. I've talked to um, folks that work in HR, and they're like, yeah, if you find a policy that covers that, like, that is better than gold. Mm -hmm. Um, And thinking about, you know, this isn't they aren't just covering it because it's like cheap and you can just pay for it either. Right. So, um, a typical, you know, IVF cycle costs around $10,000. Yeah. Typical IUI probably closer to only a couple thousand dollars. So yeah. So, um, if we, you know, I, I had broken this down as, you know, we had discussions around, um, a fertility bill that's coming up in Maine, um, looking at, you know, how much would it cost to get my partner pregnant versus me pregnant, right? If we have to go through hopefully just one IVF cycle, which, you know, a mm. uh, 60% success rate, I think, yeah. um, costs around $10,000. Most people have to go through a couple. Um, and then looking at IUI, um, probably closer to $5,000. If my partner gets pregnant in, you know, six months, we would be looking at, you know, a bill of almost 
pretty close to 30,000. And that's, is that including like the actual childbirth and hospital? Nope. I had a feeling it wasn't, but I didn't want to assume. You know what they say when you assume? I think one thing that this is not the only factor for why, you know, this is not covered care. I think there's a lot of factors, but I think one really big factor is the stigma around accessing fertility care. And I think that this is, I think that exactly what that stigma looks like and feels like is going to be very different for queer couples versus cishet couples. Because in cishet couples, there is more likely to be that weird pressure of like, oh, I have failed in some way because like my sperm aren't good enough swimmers or I have a low sperm count or I don't produce eggs well enough or like my uterus doesn't want to cooperate with this. So I think there's that type of stigma there. And then with, I guess, would you like to speak to some, maybe some of the unique stigma with the, with queer folks accessing fertility care and how that might be different than what cisgender straight people experience for stigma. Yeah, I found a lot of the stigma has to do with um, the idea that if you're accessing fertility care, you must be snubbing the idea of like adopting or fostering kids, mm-hmm. uh, which is not the case whatsoever, right? Um, as we look at, you know, our own, you know, family and looking at, you know, starting that, a lot of folks have, you know, we've broken down the costs of, you know, IVF, IUI, all of those and said, yeah, this is a barrier for us. And people were like, oh, well, you can just adopt or you can just You can just adopt. You can just foster. Right. And that, the idea that there are just, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids, you know, waiting around. There are, absolutely, but that is not a free, there are, there are tax benefits, sure, but that's not a free thing that you can just walk up to, you know, um, a foster care agency and just say, hey, yes, I would like one child, right? That's not yeah, how that this works. this is, you know, it's not the dollar menu. Uh, you can't just go order a kid. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that is a thing that I've noticed that there, even for, um, you know, cishet couples looking to get fertility care, like I have seen that there is still this like well, why don't you just adopt? And again, adoption is like a very valid form of parenting. It's a different, it's not the same kind of parenting. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not to say like, you know, it can't be just as loving or just as, it's just different. It's just not the same thing. Um, And, you know, like I've noticed at least from what I've witnessed that there is not nearly as much pressure, again, still some, but on cishet couples accessing fertility care to, you know, be like, oh, well, just adopt. Again, still some, but not as much. Um, One piece of stigma that I imagine is a factor is just, you know, stigma and discrimination for being part of the LGBTQ plus community. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We are very lucky that we live in Maine and I have I have a list of you know fertility care providers that I know are going to be you know very affirming um, of lawyers but that's not the case everywhere right and thinking about you know even if they are affirming even if I you know go in and I'm like hey this is who I am I need you to you know use these pronouns for me this is this is my life 
again, it's so inherently gendered because we associate, you know, women with having eggs and uterus and, you know, a vagina and men with having sperm and testes and a penis that going in is an extremely frustrating experience Mm. in that, you know, people are going to go in and say to me, you know, they're going to look at me and they're going to be like, that's a lesbian couple. Okay. How are you two mommies doing? And I'm like, that is not, that's not who I am. And you didn't necessarily take the time, even if you were trying to be affirming, right. That misgendering can still occur in that, you know, I go in and people read me a certain way, even if, you know, they're trying to be really good, you know? Yeah. Right. And, and actually, I just had a thought while you were talking to um, backtrack a little, one thing that can also come up, because again, you know, adoption and fostering, those are still like, that's still parenthood. It's just, I don't know, I guess I'll say it's just a different flavor, different approach, different venue. Um, But, you know, people saying just do that ignores that like, okay, but it's, it being different doesn't mean it's bad. It just might not be the right fit. It ignores that adoption is super expensive. There are a lot of adoptees who I've I've seen stuff recently kind of speaking out about how the current adoption system is really unhealthy for adoptees. Mm-hmm. So that could be a reason that someone doesn't want to adopt. Um, and the same with fostering. You know, the foster care system is very not cool in a lot of ways you know there is still a lot of racism particularly against like black families and indigenous families that's built into that and so you know some people who who might not want to go that route for having children it might not be that like they think it's lesser or anything it's that they do not feel comfortable being a part of that system Um, and I think that is an important factor to consider as well Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, part of the, this is not so much in, you know, public adoption and fostering Mm. agencies, but private ones, they're, they can discriminate based on, you know, we want to see one mom, one dad in the house. Well, shit, you know, (laughs) you can swear. I swear on the podcast all the time. Okay. Um, Well, shit. (laughs) Um, Looking at, you know, is this family going to be the right, you know, fit for this child? that is so subjective, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know the criteria that is on the other end if, you know, I'm perceived because, you know, I'm a queer sex educator, I'm an LGBTQ plus advocate. Is that going to then come out on the other end and look like, oh, well, they're going to like indoctrinate this child Mm -hmm. or, you know, force them to be LGBTQ plus. Um, So even outside of, you know, we want to see one mom, one dad, there are still, you know, those inherent, you know, perceptions. And and even, you know, people who outside of like, you know, them fostering or them adopting, you know, members of the LGBTQ plus community are at risk of having their children taken away by the foster system for those reasons. You know, particularly trans folks, you know, will it doesn't happen as often as it used to but it absolutely still happens where you know you have a trans person who has a kiddo and they essentially get reported to CPS for being trans and and they have their kid taken away because it's this idea of like oh well this person exists as a trans person near their child and that's inherently abusive and no it's not it's just reflective of you know a cis normative heteronormative society that 
that views being part of the LGBTQ plus community as something unnatural and as something bad. Uh, so it makes, you know, while that's not directly fertility care, obviously it's related in regards to like having children, you know, it very much complicates um, and can make parenthood, you know, very difficult for for our community. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes right back to queer fertility care in that, you know, if you don't have those legal protections around this is mm. my child, um, God forbid something happens where your partner is not, you know, listed as a legal guardian of that child, then it's super easy for something like that to happen mm-hmm. where this child is then taken from your possession, maybe, you know, it, it, it's just there's so much danger there inherent in, you know, not having those legal protections because you just had somebody that you knew donate sperm, you know. Right. It's it's a thing that is so complicated that really doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be this complicated, you know. Insurance companies, they have enough money to cover this. They, you know, they are not hurting financially. Um, you know, they can cover this care for people and and make it so that people can build the families that they want to have. And obviously, you know, that is a huge part of reproductive justice framework, um, you know, from Sister Song, that people have the right to build the families that they want to have and and be able to parent their children. Um, yeah, I really hope that this is something that we can see a shift on soon. You mentioned that legislation here in Maine, and I really hope that we can get this coverage because, you know, there's no, there's no reason that it should be, like, easier for if I... I mean, I don't want to have kids, but let's say if I wanted to, for me to, like, if I have a partner who produces sperm, that, like, you know, I get that for free. I mean, I wouldn't get the pregnancy care for free, but I would get the sperm for free. And, you know, it should be easier for everyone to to access the care they need. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, with that, we'll wrap up. I just wanted to check. Did you have any last thoughts? No, I don't. I don't think so. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Reproductive Left. Uh, and thanks everyone for listening. Mm-hmm.